Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 14th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Politicians return to work this week with the doll scheduled to sit at 2 o'clock tomorrow. The Fine Gael party meets today to prepare for the new term, which will begin with debates on housing, rural crime and the upcoming nurses' strike. Legislation to establish a tribunal into cervical check and to to create buffer zones outside of abortion providers will be high on the agenda. The role of women in the home, getting divorced after being separated for two years instead of four, or voting in presidential elections while living abroad could be put to a vote in constitutional referenda. The political parties will intensify their preparations for local and European elections in May, while speculation of a general election continues. Let's talk about some of these issues with Gavin Riley, who's political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Good morning, Gavin. Happy New Year, for that matter, albeit a belated Happy uh, New Year at this you, stage. Happy New Year. Uh, but it, it's uh, back to a new term for the politicians. And whilst all of those issues may be very important, there's really only one issue which will dominate uh, the minds and hearts of uh, those who are charged with running the country, and that's the vote in Westminster tomorrow night, which is expected to be defeated. Yeah, and, and really then the question mark is how heavily Theresa May is defeated by because it seems up till now that, that her plan B has always ultimately been to, just to try and revive plan A, which is the deal that's on the table for tomorrow night. Uh, but the prospects of trying to revive that or convince people to change their minds or maybe to abstain where they had previously voted against, uh, that will all depend on the margin of her defeat last night. And there, there is a bit of a theory going around Westminster that if she was to lose by you know upwards of three figures, if there were to be 100 or 150 MPs in the balance, uh, then really that would be curtains as far as Plan A goes. Now, uh, as one of the quirks of Westminster is that now it seems that after that, um, the power to determine a Plan B will be largely out of her hands, that she is now compelled uh, by the House of Commons to go back with them, uh, to go back to them on Friday uh, and unveil exactly what her Plan B might be. Uh, but MPs do have the power to effectively amend that, which means that it is uh, exactly what Brexit was supposed to be, about taking back control. But nobody knows quite exactly uh, what's going to come out or what sort of Plan B might be come up with. And whether that will be acceptable uh, to the rest of Europe, but it all is shaping towards 
the idea that Theresa May is going to lose in that major vote tomorrow night and she's going to lose by such a major margin that effectively then the rest of the process will be out of her hands uh, but bearing in mind that the rest of Europe it says that it's this deal or no deal then it would look as if we're, we're more likely to either to be heading towards a no deal Brexit altogether uh, or hoping that the wind changes in Westminster and that people change their minds about whether Brexit is worth pursuing at all. And there could even be a, a second referendum uh, there's a, a cross party uh, piece of legislation, draft legislation uh, which has uh, been put together uh, by Dominic Grieve and others. Yeah, that's right. But, but the, uh, the, this is a, a pro- proposing a referendum on either uh, accepting Brexit under the terms of what Theresa May has already negotiated or simply not to leave the European Union at all at all. Uh, the major difficulty there is that it doesn't give people the option to leave without a deal if that's what they want. And as, as long as there are the people, the likes of Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg in the House of Commons saying that it's perfectly fine to leave without a deal and that people don't have to feel like they're hamstrung to Europe and mm. that they, they're trying to suggest to the British people that leaving without a deal and enduring all of that chaos won't actually be the worst thing in the world um, then the, the referendum of that sort of line is always going to be a little bit troubled because effectively it's worth remembering and you know with all the, the talk that's been going on that ultimately not much has changed in Westminster in the last few months mm. there are three options on the table there is uh, don't leave the European Union at all there is leave the European Union with no deal or there's leave the European Union with Theresa May's deal. And, and that's why you know, a referendum mm. has always been uh, touted with a lot of difficulty because a referendum, by definition, only gives people two of those options. So do you say, you know, Brexit on Theresa May's terms or no Brexit at all? Do you say uh, Brexit with no deal or Theresa May's Brexit? You know, it, it's difficult to figure out which of those options you should leave off the ballot paper. And that's why, uh, ultimately, I think any calls for a referendum might be uh, a little bit ill-fated. Now, if Theresa May's deal is voted down in, in fairly phenomenal numbers tomorrow, it might effectively take that off the table and then you might be getting down to a, a black or white decision about you know leaving with no contingencies or staying behind altogether. In, in those circumstances where there's only two options on the table, maybe then a referendum begins to become a more real prospect. But I think while there mm. are three options on the table, I think a referendum is, is a difficult one to countenance. So what's the purpose of Mrs May coming back on Friday, assuming that she loses uh, the vote tomorrow night with a plan and B, there is this obligation on her to do that, uh, but uh, that's not open for negotiation as far as Europe is concerned. Yeah, well, well, it's worth bearing in mind that the reason why she has to come back on Friday is not a timeline of her own making. This is, in fact, again, mm. the House of Commons asserting control over the process, where last week, Theresa May and her government were defeated in a vote where she was looking to be given three weeks grace, so that if the, the deal was voted down uh, tomorrow, which is January the 15th, that she wouldn't have to go back again until the 5th of February, three weeks later, uh, to try and present some sort of alternative of plan of action. Uh, the fear among many uh, MPs within uh, the House of Commons, uh, particularly those who don't want to have a Brexit at all, is that Theresa May would actually just sit on her hands and twiddle her thumbs for those three weeks, come back and say that there is no plan B, it's my plan or nothing. Um, and the concern among those people is that if Theresa May just talks down the clock, then she doesn't give Britain the option to negotiate any other deal. Now, again, as you rightly say, the EU says it's this deal or nothing. So mm-hmm. the idea of trying to buy some time or go back to Brussels with an alternative shop list, it might be a bit of a fool's errand because the EU might not be willing to talk anyway. Um, But on the, the outside chance that the EU is willing to entertain some new discussions, the rest of Westminster simply doesn't want to let Theresa May run down the clock and leave no time to do that. So they're obliging her to come back next Friday uh, with some sort of alternative plan of action uh, and assuming that she's not able to get support for that. At that point, uh, MPs then take control of the process. And, 
you know, we haven't seen any kind of major uh, consensus breaking out in Westminster exactly as to what that sort of plan B might be, but mm-hmm. at least it might be able to uh, harden some minds in Westminster and that MPs might decide to, to climb down off the fence onto one side or the other and then give something of an indication as to where exactly they stand. And the quicker that they all harden their minds and really figure out where they stand on this, uh, the better for everyone, because the longer this uncertainty goes on, then the harder it is for, for businesses and, uh, and everyone else to try and plan for it. So the more certainty we can have, the sooner the better. Isn't the 21st of January uh, the date uh, that uh, this deal has to be agreed if the United Kingdom is to leave the European Union by the 31st of March uh, and and leaves this position today that in a week from now it's not agreed that it's going to have to be extended uh, at best uh, and it does look as though there could very well be an extension of the date. There could well be an extension, and it was something that Simon Coveney briefly touched upon last week. And he said that if Britain did want to extend the talks a little bit, so that it was try to to you know allow for a more orderly exit, that was something that Ireland wouldn't stand in the way of. Um, the current deadline that you mentioned there of January 21st, that is all based around the idea that the European Parliament is supposed to be sitting in Strasbourg next week, and its intention uh, was to vote on that deal. So the idea was that if if Mairead McGuinness and her all all of her other colleagues around Europe uh, were to sit down next week mm. and approve that deal, that would affect mark the, the, the delay for it all but I, I think there would be an appetite to delay it to some degree uh, if it meant that you're, that the United Kingdom didn't go crashing out by itself I mean I suppose again uh, the idea of delaying it probably depends on there being a clear path of action I think nobody's going to be de- delaying Brexit and to, to only delay the inevitable unless Theresa May or someone else in Britain comes back with a coherent plan that they might be able to get over the line um, for what it's worth Michael my mm-hmm. taking it all and that you know everyone yeah. most people agree in Westminster that they don't want to leave without a deal. Uh, and I think there, there, there certainly there would be a majority against the deal. But sometimes you hear a lot of pundits, and again, I heard some of them on radio again this morning, saying that, well, because there is a majority against leaving with no deal, uh, that a no deal won't happen. But I think, to draw a parallel, it's a little bit like uh, a big old famous ship sailing towards an iceberg. Everyone agrees that going towards the iceberg is the wrong thing to do, uh, but 30% of the passengers want to veer to the left, 30% of the passengers want to veer to the right, and the remaining passengers just want to stop the engines and hope that the, the impact doesn't actually happen. There isn't a majority in favour of any one course of action and my fear or my suspicion is that Westminster is so paralysed that the default option uh, is the one that will materialise which is that they will leave at the end of March with no deal at all. Uh, and what about Jeremy Corbyn's uh, threat to force a, a general election and can he be successful in doing that and what would the outcome of that be in terms of Brexit? Well, well uh, who knows? I mean, I thought it was very interesting yesterday that Jeremy Corbyn was on the Andrew Marr show on BBC and he was asked, you know, when would the, his party put down a motion of no confidence in Theresa May's government? And he said, soon. Now, it was very interesting that only yesterday and on the front of one of the British papers, it was, it was uh, effectively touting that as soon as Theresa May lost her plan A tomorrow, that at that point, Labour would immediately put down a motion of no confidence and try to put the government out of its misery. Uh, no sooner had some Labour spin doctor put that on the front page of the Observer yesterday, Jeremy Corbyn going on TV about 12 hours later and saying, no, that's not the case, that we don't have a fixed timetable for it. And it was really, for anyone who might have happened to see Jeremy Corbyn yesterday, it was infuriating the degree to which he was dithering and equivocating and in some circumstances didn't even seem to understand exactly what the EU did or which of its institutions were actually the EU's and which existed independently of it. It's all very muddled and I think any of us who might be hoping that you know a newly hardened or strengthened opposition might emerge and force Theresa May one way or the other into some kind of certainty 
uh, unfortunately I think we're going to be kept waiting for a little while Alright and uh, undoubtedly the business of the Irish Parliament will be dominated by that this week but uh, for some time to come uh, as well uh, we heard before Christmas about 45 pieces of legislation they're now talking about 60 pieces of legislation that need to be amended in order to prepare for Brexit Yeah now and only 21 of those actually need to go through the Dáil and the Shannon all the rest can be done by way of uh, statutory instruments which is a fancy way of saying ministerial order so effectively uh, members of the cabinet can just sign regulations at the stroke of a pen mm. and that can take care of a lot of that but you're right there are uh, at least 21 pieces uh, of what's called primary legislation full you know active directives that have to be fully debated and vetted uh, by the Dáil and the Shannon before they get into law uh, and one thing that's really interesting is that it's nearly now a month since we saw this very extensive memo from the government talking about all of the various contingency plans they were going to need to do, they outlined all of the areas that they needed laws for. Um, the Dole schedule for this week uh, bearing in mind it hasn't formally been ratified yet, but the indicative Dáil schedule for this week doesn't have debate on any of those uh, items of Brexit legislation. And, and as of right now, we still don't know whether the government is going to plan to do that as 21 different laws or whether it will roll them together into four or five different omnibus laws or whether it will plan to just bring all these before the Dáil in one big bang Brexit preparedness or preparation bill. But well, the interesting thing, again, is that, you know, sometimes we think of, well, if you roll it all into one bill, that it might be quicker to pass. If you roll all of these things relating to, you know, broadcasting and the European elections and the continuity of law and fisheries rights and aviation rules and all of that, if you try to roll all of those into one giant bill, it's going to be a mammoth piece of legislation, which is going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to get through door committees. So by trying to put it all into one big pot, it doesn't necessarily make, make it any quicker to pass into law. Um, but certainly I think there'll be a lot of people looking for for guidance on that in the Dáil when the Dáil does get back sitting again tomorrow afternoon because as we know there's only uh, 10 weeks until Brexit might happen with a no deal some of those weeks the Dáil is going to be on holidays some of them are you know the St. Patrick's Day break so we're looking at a fairly finite and limited number of sitting days between now and Brexit and as of yet no conclusive style of exactly uh, when the Dáil is going to be debating some of this Brexit legislation and if so how many bills it's actually going to have to look for. Undoubtedly it'll overshadow everything uh, but there are other issues uh, for politicians to deal with. Fine Gael is meeting today to contemplate some of them. The Cabinet obviously will meet tomorrow ahead of the first sitting this year of the Dáil at two o'clock. Uh, what else should we be watching out for this week, Gavin? Uh, well, this week in particular, I think you, you, it'll be interesting to see exactly how high up the pecking order those referendums are. You mentioned them in mm. some of your, your introduction there that there's going to be a referendum in May about extending the right to vote for presidential elections to citizens who are living abroad. Uh, there's also a question mark about whether there should be another referendum on divorce to lower the current uh, period for which you have to be separated before you can apply for one. Uh, and there's also the ongoing question marks about whether there should be uh, a referendum to change the reference to the, the place of women in the home. And Leo Varadkar has already said that if he can get agreement on that one, uh, that he'll shelve divorce for a little while and perhaps have that later in the year. Uh, but the one thing that when we talk about Brexit and how it's going to monopolise all the dull time, uh, all the groundwork for those uh, referendums also needs to be put through uh, before the middle or the end of March if the referendums are to be held in May. And it's going to be very interesting to see if the dole has to be effectively suspended for a while in the middle of all of its Brexit preparations uh, to have a discussion about extending the rights of, of presidential mm. electors and all of that. Uh, on top of all of this, again, another electoral matter, the European elections coming up in mm. May. Um, if there is an extension to Article 50, then we don't know exactly how many MEPs we're supposed to be electing. We were supposed to be getting an extra two seats by, by virtue of those that Britain was going to be leaving behind it. 
But if Article 50 is extended beyond the end of May, you could have the ridiculous situation where Britain, even though it's leaving the EU, still has to elect a batch of MEPs anyway. And if they're doing that, then we go back from 13 seats to 11. That has knock-on effects for the Dublin constituency, which is due to gain one seat. Uh, it also means that the constituency in which Mees and Lowther are situated, uh, there are two counties that are supposed to be moving towards the Munster constituency, which could be staying behind. So there's all sorts of practical knock-on effects as well. And again, much like our, our planning for uh, the Brexit preparedness, we don't seem to know exactly when a decision is going to be made on, on any of that. So no doubt they'll be uh, raising their heads again this week or next week either. Okay, great to talk to you and thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with uh, the Meath Chronicle. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if uh, Gavin Riley's analysis is uh, correct and uh, the paralysis in Westminster is such uh, that there may be no route other than a no-deal Brexit, well, what then? Uh, Declan Brannock, Fianna Fáil TD in Louth and junior spokesperson on North-South Bodies and Cross-Border Cooperation joins us. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Fianna Fáil is uh, concerned uh, that we're not prepared for a no deal scenario. Uh, absolutely, uh, Michael, I think uh, I would compliment Gavin firstly on his uh, uh, delivery of, 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 of what the situation is, but this has been I suppose a week of what I would call the seas, attempted coups, um, chaos, confusion, indeed choreography from uh, the EU and indeed it's going to lead to a catastrophe uh, if if Britain doesn't get its act together and uh, I'm sure your listeners are almost fed up as I said the last time I spoke here mm. on the whole issue but it is such a complex issue in terms of the impact that uh, any break in uh, be it a no deal or a fudge deal the reality is that both Ireland and Northern Ireland will be the key sufferers uh, we're, the, we're the country that would be most exposed on Brexit and you know, in terms of our economic prosperity and our own mm-hmm. economy, the trading relationships, the connectivity and the peace process, not to mention security uh, and issues like that, are so important to get right as uh, the withdrawal agreement needs to be definitive, needs to be focused. I, I think, to be honest with you, tomorrow is what I would describe as Theresa May's Tuesday, and at that stage, there's 73 days to go mm. to the 29th of March, and if there, if our government does not put the contingency uh, plans in place, uh, then we are going to see serious difficulties in relation to many aspects of life in this country. The reality is, Michael, that the contingency plans were published uh, just as the dollar broke up at Christmas. Uh, I heard Gavin say there that it's not even on the agenda for this week, and we, we, we need to make sure that the various needs that are required are put in place. For example, we had promises of additional uh, security, uh, some uh, the various vets and, and, and mm. uh, issues that are needed, particularly in relation to animal husbandry, we were promised uh, developments or our ports uh, to facilitate uh, our trucks and uh, our haulage industry. All of this has been more lip service than action. And uh, the reality here is that, you know, we've had several reports done um, in relation to the difficulties that would happen at door. Indeed, the central bank has indicated that uh, GDP in Ireland uh, might uh, be around 3% lower uh, after uh, 10 years than under a no-Brexit scenario. Uh, 
we have reports in relation to agri-food industry, the decimation that would happen that, the, the number of jobs that could be lost. And I'm only tipping the iceberg mm. here of the issues uh, that I believe we have been complacent and our government have been complacent despite the fact that Fianna Fáil as a party has been holding to account. I think to a degree, and I've heard it over the last number of weeks, I've heard Simon Coby say that, Leo Radker say this, you know, we have to be sensitive to the, the British needs. I understand that. That's their democracy and they made mm. decisions and they have to live with them. But the reality here for the people of this county and beyond and the people of this country, both north and south, Ireland can't no longer pussyfoot around the British have uh, procrastinated on this issue. So, so, so you believe, to begin with, that the uh, proposal will be defeated tomorrow night, that Mrs May will lose the vote? Yeah, I, I have no doubt. And I, I suppose for the record, Michael, I've been saying from, from the very outset of this process uh, that Brexit should not happen. And I've said that mm. from day one. But I felt that it was too difficult a break for a country who, who believes it's in, in its importance on the world stage, which is no longer the case, that the decision to exit one of the biggest markets that were available to them and to even suggest mm. that they could form trade deals here, there and everywhere was was Okay, yeah. so uh, as Gavin Riley said, uh, as it stands, there's three options. One is to stay in the European Union. One is to s- accept Mrs May's withdrawal agreement, which is going to be defeated. Uh, and the other is to crash out. So that leaves two, stay in the European Union or crash out. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I personally believe that despite uh, all the talk of democracy, and I get a sense from a lot of politicians I've been dealing with uh, right across uh, Britain, uh, that uh, they will have a second vote. And that was said to be a no-no from the other one. Mm. I think uh, uh, we've had a vote of confidence, Theresa May, that was lost. I think she's going to lose the vote uh, by a substantial number. She needs 320 votes uh, tomorrow night, and uh, they're... You know, while she's 215 Tories in the 10 DUP, the reality is that she has only about 200 of those 325 votes available to her. And my prediction is she would have a large defeat. She would be obligated to come back mm. uh, by the following Monday. I think Jeremy Corbyn will try, despite the fact that the Labour Party don't seem to be supportive of the leader in this respect, he will try to force an election. Mm. I think there will also be a vote of no confidence, but that will be defeated also. And ultimately, I think the, 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 the word coup or coup that I used at the mm-hmm. outset of the programme, I do think that there are enough people in the Parliament in Britain who are planning and plotting mm-hmm. to bring the power back to the members of Parliament. And this would be the first time, believe it or not, since Charles Stuart Parnell tried to uh, 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 bring that power okay. to people uh, many, many in the well, early 80s. Well, if that happens, the, the, the issues the people will be voting on is uh, to uh, accept Mrs May's deal or to stay in the European Union. Uh, I think so. Ultimately, that would have to be very much laid out because, you know, we, say whatever, mm. we have another referendum. Another, the reality is that it has to be a time constraint mm. and that there would be a, 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 an acceptance that the outcome of this particular referendum would be honoured. And I know there are many who mm. are pro-Brexit uh, who would say, well, that's very unfair. The reality here was that when Theresa May talks about, uh, you know, if, if they don't vote for the hard mm. deal, that it's undermining democracy. The reality is that democracy was undermined in Britain at the very outset. In the 
campaign. Okay, but if it goes to a, a second vote, uh, it's not like there'll be a second deal and alternative, a plan B for people to vote on. It's either take it or leave it in terms of Mrs May's deal, or if you decide to reject that, you stay in the European Union. Uh, I, I believe so, but I think that uh, any holding of a second referendum would have to be very much conditioned, indeed conditioned uh, by the EU, the, uh, the time frame and, and, and the, the you know, agreement on the wording, because we cannot have any further confusion. The economies and the peace that these two islands mm. have, have, have had for so long, as we are talking about invisible border, any attempt to interfere with that, I would have huge concerns about it. Uh, I mean, you know, Michael, that I often harp on on, on the issue of, of, of smoking. We've had reports over the weekend that in the event uh, 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 of, of a breakfast scenario in any form, David Sterling, minister, the, the, the senior official running the Northern Ireland Finance Department, has said be, there will be huge issues there. There are going to be issues that your listeners are fed up me and others talking about okay, uh, but it, leave this country in, in a no-win situation, we'll leave Northern Ireland in a no-win mm. situation, and indeed we'll set Britain back 10 years. And who wants to do If that? there is to be a second vote, though, what do you think the outcome of it will be? Do you think that people would vote to stay in the European Union after uh, deciding to leave? Uh, or do you think that they will decide to accept Mrs May's deal? Uh, I, I think uh, there's a, a recognition in, in, in England that, um, that, you know, they've had very poor leadership, not necessarily from Theresa May, most people accept that she's stuck to her guns, but mm. in terms of uh, the various parties and how they have uh, attempted to, to, to wind their way around this whole issue of Brexit, I think that people realise in particularly who didn't vote even in the Brexit referendum in Britain, it will come to the table when it comes to the rerun of a referendum. I mean, I'm speculating, as you know, Michael, but I firmly believe that there's a reality that people uh, were that it wasn't explained properly to the Eng- to the people of England and indeed Northern Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. And I I, I, I would, regardless of what happens. I, I, I think you're on the mobile phone. Uh, the coverage has uh, just suddenly got uh, worse. I, I'm not sure if you've moved from where you were no, uh, at the beginning of the. I, I can hear you, but you're, you, you've started to come and go. Uh, whatever the change has been, um, yeah. we'll, we'll try to stay with you for uh, another moment. Yeah. But I, I did hear uh, a politician uh, talking this morning, uh, suggesting uh, that when people voted in 2016, they were uh, voting on a hypothetical outcome. Uh, and th- in other words, they didn't know what uh, the outcome of voting to leave the European Union would mean to them and their lives. Uh, whereas uh, today, if it goes back to a second vote, people would have a clear understanding uh, of the impact of that decision. Absolutely. I think whether it was the agricultural industry, whether it was, uh, you know, we saw last week uh, the car industry announcing loss of 4,000 jobs. Uh, a reality, I think, will dawn on people and that they're better inside a union that they can deliver on. We have all sorts of talk around Norway style or Norway plus. The reality here would be that they would be taking uh, the rules and paying for them but having no say in relation to them. Why would you take a turn backwards? And I keep using this reference, Michael, that you speak to any minister or former minister in any government 
be it an Ireland or England, they will tell you it can take up to 10 years mm. to a trade deal. And it's, so it's fanciful talk that a lot of these Brexiteers are talking about in relation to what they can do right across the world and, and sail the ocean. Blue OK, again. but to conclude, you believe there'll be a, a second vote and that the United Kingdom will ultimately stay in the European Union? Uh, well, I would hope that. And in the event that, they, that that doesn't happen, I think it's so important, Michael, that Scotland, Wales, Ireland and Northern Ireland develop... Uh, what I would t- call a, a Celtic-type community uh, if Brexit uh, is to happen so that we can ensure uh, that the friendships, the, the the trust and all of those things are built up. And indeed, the importance of the economy. I mean, for example, if you take Wales, we 6.4% of our, of our trade is is with the Welsh people. There are endless opportunities to develop that Celtic uh, link and Celtic corridor in the event that they don't. But, but the, my most important point here, and I think I've said it already, and that is that we must uh, cajole and persuade uh, the British people without interfering in the democracy, be, democracy that it is better to be in the club than out of it. All right, we'll leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Louth. Declan Brannock is his party's junior spokesperson on North-South Bodies and Cross-Border Cooperation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you heard in uh, the bulletin uh, this morning, uh, there's concern in uh, Dundalk uh, that uh, the courts might order the repossession of up to as many as 50 family homes today. The Minister for Justice said last week that repossession should never be a matter of routine and that every effort should be made to ensure dialogue between the financial institutions and uh, the individual involved takes place. Every person, Charlie Flanagan said, who takes out a mortgage must be aware of or made aware of the consequences and the ultimate consequence. However sad that may be, repossession is as a result of inability to pay. He also said it was wrong of politicians and commentators to make comparisons with the famine despite the high emotion that accompanies these evictions. Let's talk about this now with Paul Murphy who's a Solidarity TD for Dublin South West. And you'd be opposed to, to repossessions in all circumstances, I think. Well, I'd certainly be opposed to uh, repossessions of uh, the family home, um, you know, except in absolutely extreme circumstances and where people have somewhere else uh, very clearly to go. Um, I think what people right across the country were rightly outraged about about the particular um, repossession which provoked the, the comment and so on was the, I mean, what, what was clear in terms of the videos that went viral on social media violence by private security um, who are effectively unlicensed um, with the Guardi standing by and allowing them uh, to do it. Um, that's the second time in the course of maybe a month that we saw that sort of activity we saw it before against the occupation, uh, the Take Back the City occupation in, in Dublin, where again, the private security in Balaclavas, backed up by Gardaí in Balaclavas, yeah. um, asserting the right of landowners as against two, in, in that case, um, peaceful uh, protesters. Um, and, and I think the idea that, you know, yeah. as, as Bradker was celebrating the role of vulture funds over the, over the course of, of Christmas, the idea that that's what we should be 
be doing, I think, is, is wrong, and people are right to oppose um, repossessions and evictions. All right. Uh, the uh, minister has said he's concerned about security firms uh, that aren't regulated. He also said, though, that the late of rate of repossessions are, are very low. Uh, the most recent incident uh, that got all of uh, that uh, attention in Falsk, just outside of uh, Strokestown, uh, didn't uh, include the use of balaclavas, uh, but it was very uncomfortable to watch people being forcibly removed from their home. Uh, but was it wrong and is it always wrong? I mean, in that case, it seems as though the mortgage hadn't been paid for nine years. Yeah, I think that there are disputes about um, the actual facts of the case, whereby um, the bank says, oh, there's no be no um, interaction, but the family and those close to them say that they've repeatedly attempted to uh, engage with the bank and to come up with uh, a settlement. And the truth is, from my own experience, I know there are cases whereby the bank decides that actually they want to repossess the home. And it is true that the rates of repossession have been you know, relatively low over the last number of years. Obviously, for anyone who it happens to, it's an absolute crisis. But all the indications are is that that figure may be about to jump up substantially. And the reason for that is that as house prices have increased, the um, interest in the banks... Um, repossessing the homes because negative equity no longer is a factor um, and they, they sorry the, the value of the home is now you know substantially in excess of the debt that they're owed um, it, it becomes quite a an attractive option for them and so there are a number of indications like you're you're talking about that that we could see a significant uptick in in these and I think you know people will be right to peacefully civil disobedience and so on mm. um, oppose the eviction of people from, from family homes. I mean, you but know, at, we at want to make the housing crisis worse. At what stage should somebody be evicted? Well, in the case of, of tenants, I think in case where you have, you know, antisocial criminal behaviour um, going on, mm. um, where, where people have are not engaging whatsoever with banks or with landlords or whatever, and there's no particularly good reason forest so there are there are cases but the vast majority i mean to be honest most evictions that are taking place aren't taking place in terms of owner occupiers they're taking place in terms of of tenants mm. and that's the, the biggest wave of of evictions by quite a long uh, shot and that's okay what, but we've heard claims from the banks uh, not just isolated to that story uh, at Falsk, uh, where uh, the owner-occupier has not paid the mortgage for five, seven, nine years, as the case may be. In an owner-occupier scenario where the mortgage isn't being paid and there has been no engagement with the bank, at what stage should they, should they be evicted? Well, uh, one thing I'd say is that the banks, for their own purposes, massively overstate the number of people who have zero engagement with them whatsoever. And this came up with with PTSB, who had Mm -hmm. some press release kind of implying that there was a huge number of people who had no engagement. And when we had them in before the Finance Committee, that quickly fell apart. And when they ultimately gave the figures, it was substantially less. Like, really, it was a small percentage of the figure that they had been implying in the previous one. So they they like to talk about, you know, these extreme cases and imply that everybody Mm -hmm. involved. Um... I mean, I think if it's the case that someone has the ability to pay and is genuinely not engaging whatsoever, yes, that's unsustainable. Let's say they don't have the ability to pay and they're not engaged. At what stage should they be told you can't live there anymore? Well, I I 
think really in a context whereby the society as a whole has bailed out the banks mm-hmm. to a massive uh, extent, the banks shouldn't be run simply as for-profit agencies, but they should be run as a public utility in the interest of the public as a whole. And so a part of that should be engagement with people who can't afford to pay the full rate of their mortgage, but can afford to pay something and seek to have a process of a write-down to uh, an affordable level and therefore people could stay in, in their homes. I think that's, you know, that is a reasonable approach that should be taken. But obviously at the moment we have nationalised banks that are run on a commercial basis and we have private banks that are run obviously on a commercial uh, basis. And so that's okay. a, a major problem but, but that we have here. If somebody says, I'm not paying the mortgage or, uh, you know, I can't uh, afford to pay the mortgage uh, and that might be disputed or uh, can only pay a small portion of uh, the mortgage, uh, you're saying that they should be allowed to stay in the house regardless of the size of the property or the value of the property or anything else? Uh, I'm not talking about the extreme cases which you can find. You know, well, I suppose what I'm asking you is, what, 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 would, what would you call an extreme case? At, at what I, I, stage should some, somebody be asked to leave? I mean, that was the question that I did put to you. Yeah, yes. So I, I, well, I, tell, I tell you, people should not be evicted from you know, average, normal family homes. I think that's a, that's a basic starting point. Yes, if you have some you know, former billionaires still living in lavish yeah. lifestyles and mansions and so on, no, I don't think they should be allowed to hold on to their homes. So but, so are you saying that somebody could move into a house that's worth two or €300,000 and not pay any mortgage? Uh, no, I, I think most people will be able to pay something. No, but if people but decide I, I not think, to... But I, I don't think I mean, we should be evicting people at this, but, at this time but, but, okay, in the but context it, of 10,000 people homeless right across the, the country. But, I mean, in the extreme cases, as you put it, if somebody moves into a house, uh, a, a standard house... Uh, and doesn't pay their mortgage, uh, should they be allowed to continue to live there? But but I don't think that's what happens, right? Obviously, no. If somebody pays nothing, is not willing to pay, not yeah. willing to pay anything despite it, obviously, no. But that's they aren't the circumstances that exist in the real world. In the real world, you're dealing with people who have become unemployed. Perhaps they have a health issue in yeah. their family. You're dealing with you know personal tragedies in families that have affected people's ability to pay. They want to pay. They want to continue to have somewhere to live. Mm. And I think as a society, we should be having democratic control of okay, the bank. But, but, rega- should, should but rega- with those people. regardless of whether you're just a, a chancer or you've become sick or you've become unemployed, if you're not paying your mortgage, uh, should you be allowed to live there? Indefinitely. I mean, after five years, for example, or, or, or is there a time frame that you would have in your mind where you would say, look, it's just not working, whatever the reason? I, I would say that the notice on the bank to discuss with people, to come up with arrangements that will work for people who are genuinely struggling, genuinely need somewhere to, to live, mm. um, and we should be avoiding going down the road of, of evicting people. It, it's not going to... It's not going to help the situation. It's really not. But is it always avoidable, I suppose? That's the question. Um, I think in the vast majority of cases, if the banks had a serious engagement, okay. as opposed to looking to repossess or as opposed to looking to shift it off to vulture funds who may do the dirty work that politically they not, may not feel able to do, um, I think that's you know, the vast majority of cases. Okay, but so in the small minority of cases uh, where uh, it, it isn't avoidable, at what stage do you say to people you can't live there anymore? Well, that, that would ultimately be, be a case for if, if you had, you know, publicly run banks on that basis, then the banks will be taking different decisions on that basis and ultimately up to the courts uh, on that basis. But I think 
the current balance is completely unfairly tilted in favour of the banks and against ordinary people who were faced with difficult... But decided uh, on by the courts. I mean, ultimately, if you had a different set of legal arrangements, etc., it's, it's not for me to prescribe mm. now a very detailed set that no, no. if your house is over X million and mm. you have... You know what I mean? Um, but I, I think... Look, if, if you had a government and you had a banking system that was serious about protecting the, the rights of people as opposed to the rights of, of bankers um, over the last number of years, but obviously mm. now, I think um, that's not hard to come up with. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as you. always, for joining us uh, this morning. Solidarity TD for Dublin South West, Paul Murphy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Plenty coming in on Brexit. Gronier from Drogheda. If there's a general election in the UK, will it make any difference, Michael? Will they not still proceed with Brexit? Mm. Seamus from Dundalk says that the members of the UK Parliament don't really know what they want and wonders what will happen if it's a no vote tomorrow if Theresa May is defeated. Oh, I'd answer both of those questions if I had a crystal ball. Mm. (laughs) Sean says that there's no way the UK will be ready to leave at the end of March. The whole thing is a disaster and we are going to be the losers in Ireland. All right, well, let's hope he's wrong. Margaret phoned in on the same topic mm. and says that the clock is ticking. Don't we know it, Margaret? And she says that whilst the British MEPs continue to flounder, nobody knows what is going to happen. I'm a small business owner, says Margaret, and it's a very nervous time. Mm. Yeah, well, hopefully there'll be some clarity towards uh, the end of uh, the week or going into next week into where we're going from here. Georgia from Kells predicts it'll be a nightmare for this country if they go out of the EU with no deal. We are doomed. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Tom from Dundalk, listening into your interview with Declan uh, Bratnock, and it would be mad altogether after all the time spent on this if the UK decides not to exit the EU after all. I'd nearly want to kick them out, Michael for all they put us through, except it'd be a case of cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah, well, there's uh, some truth in all of that. I'm sure, of course, uh, the UK has it in its gift to make that decision on its own without consulting with anybody. It can revoke Article 50, which was uh, the legislation which uh, enabled uh, Brexit, mm. or it can pause it uh, if it so uh, decided, uh, but uh, time will tell what hap- will happen uh, But that time running out, as our, our listeners have said, and uh, indeed uh, it'll be an interesting couple of weeks and hopefully we'll have some idea of where it's going from here in the next couple of weeks. Michael was also in touch and he thinks it will go back to the backstop and wonders, will the EU hold firm on it? Hmm. Mary has an interesting one for you, Michael. Just wondering, Michael, listening in, I'm yeah. wondering... What way at this stage do we in Ireland want the vote to go tomorrow, Westminster? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Good question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. <laughs> That's what she wants mm, to know. Mm. She said, no, you know, she would say normally, you know what way you want something to go, but she's unsure mm. what way we do actually want the vote to go. Do we want Theresa May to be defeated or not? <laughs> yeah, do we want a bad outcome or a worse outcome? <laughs> mm. uh, Jack from Cullen. Uh, Michael, if the EU had to help Theresa May, even in a small way, she could get have got the de- this deal over the line, but they didn't. So they must take a lot of the blame. Okay, right. Well, I think that would come down to the backstop, which uh, yes, 
uh, is the assurance uh, that the Irish government uh, wanted and uh, indeed uh, I think it's uh, a view that's uh, widely held as well. George phoned in and he thinks that Theresa May's days are numbered. Mm, possibly. So, mm. we'll see. If she's hold, she's just she certainly holds her own, doesn't she, Michael? Mm, she does that. You have yes. to admire yeah. as a politician, even if you don't agree with her politics. Mm. Uh, moving on from that, then, Theresa and Meath was listening to your interview with Deputy Paul Murphy, and her annoyance is with having to pay property tax. She says after scrimping and scraping to make sacrifices to buy their own house, she thinks it's very unfair that people are being asked to pay property tax. She says it there, it's now looks like it's going to increase mm. because the pricing of housing is going up and she- hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq the official etf of the ncaa the future isn't scary not realizing its potential however could be Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Things that many people just simply cannot afford it. All right. Uh, and those who can afford it are paying so much uh, that perhaps they uh, should be given a break. At least this appears uh, to be the view of Minister Josepha Madigan, uh, who has been talking about uh, the cost of property in South Dublin, some of the most expensive houses in the country, and that because those houses are so expensive uh, that there should be uh, reduced reduced local property tax rate for the people who own them. Uh, that's uh, the story that features on the front of uh, the Irish Independent. Uh, it's a, a peculiar type of story in that, uh, as the paper is reporting today, it seems uh, that the better uh, well-off uh, should be rewarded uh, in getting a, a break, whilst those people who are scraping yes. and scraping to uh, come up with the cost of a house uh, should be paying the full rate. With regards to evictions and repossessions, Anne got in touch and she says that she doesn't think that a person in their home, if you like, you know, that it's their only home, mm. should be evicted or the house repossessed once they are showing that they are making some attempt to work with the banks and are trying to pay back the money, mm. you know, to, to pay the mortgage, even if it's a reduced payment every month. Uh, she thinks it's very unfair. It's a different scenario if people own a couple of properties. Mm. Okay. 
Uh, Kathleen from Stamullen uh, was in touch in relation to something completely different. And this is the talk about giving Irish people abroad a vote in elections here. She thinks there should be no representation without taxation, that unless you pay tax in Ireland, you shouldn't have a vote. Mm. That's her thoughts on that. Going back then to, and I know we're going to be touching on it uh, again, uh, the protests uh, outside uh, places providing abortion services. We have been discussing it in that last week and the week before. Mm. And um, Jerry emailed us in on foot of remarks that you made. He said that you made reference to a group in the US who appear to be calling themselves Catholics for choice. Mm. And the position of the Catholic Church is quite clear. According to canon law and the catechism of the Catholic Church, any Catholic who supports direct abortion in any shape or form is deemed to have excommunicated themselves from the Church. They are not entitled to partake of the sacraments of the Catholic Church until such time as they confess their sins. No Catholic in good proper standing with the Catholic Church can support direct abortion in any shape or form says Jerry. All right. Uh, well, I, I think there's different views on that. Uh, and as things stand, uh, they are the rules of uh, the church. But as I understand it uh, from uh, a number of uh, people, there's rules of the church uh, that can be changed, whether that's to do with abortion, same-sex marriage or divorce or contraception or some of uh, these moral issues. Uh, but uh, there is this group, Catholics uh, for Choice, and uh, they do advocate uh, choice as such. On the nurses' strike, John from Navin says that he watched a documentary about the NHS recently and was shocked to hear about the problems they are having over there with staffing levels. He says that the NHS, which is much better funded and managed than our health service, is having such problems funding the recruiting of extra staff, then how on earth are the HSE supposed to find the money to pay all these extra nurses that are being called for? Okay, well, those nurses that are already in jobs are, to a large degree, set to strike beginning at uh, the end of uh, this month. Uh, They'll be joined by psychiatric nurses and we'll be hearing from the psychiatric nurses in uh, today's programme. Joe also phoned in on that topic and says that he happened to find himself with a family member in hospital last week and couldn't get over the amount of work that nurses are now expected to do in the hospitals and how understaffed they seem to be. And he says he can understand, having witnessed firsthand uh, all the work they have to do, why they feel the need to take strike action. Mm, Yeah, it's a very, very hard job. There's no doubt about it. And it's very stressful. and It's very hard to stay calm and uh, to stay level-headed when you're that stressed, or at least I'd find it very hard. And I I really don't know how the nurses manage to carry out their duties given the level of pressure that is on them and uh, I think is on uh, an awful lot of nurses most days. Speaking of hospitals, Michael, and the proposed name change to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, a couple of comments uh, to get through on that. Betty says that I think if the name of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital is changed, it should be called the Mother Mary Martin Hospital. Her name should never be changed. Uh, Another listener says... Uh, this is Cecilia. I don't think that anyone should change the name of the hospital. It's a Catholic country that we live in. Uh, Catherine says it's ludicrous to change the name. Loads of non-Catholics work in the hospital and have no problem with the name. And she feels that the name, a new name shouldn't be bullied in. 
uh, John says our hospital was built by a brilliant lady, Mother Mary Martin. It's terrible for people to come along and change it without any consultation with people. And I hope it never comes to pass. Kevin says people don't go to the hospital because of the name. They go for the care they get. And most people don't care what name it's called. Okay. So that's just a flavour right, of those. Well, I think there's a, a consensus there in those opinions, yes. So, yes, in those mm-hmm. particular ones, Michael. All right. All right. Okay, we'll thanks for that, Marie. That. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you know, Toe being an independent TD in Meath West, left Sinn Féin last November and is attempting to establish a new political party. Indeed, there's a, a lot of momentum around uh, this effort and Toe Bean joins us now ahead of a, a meeting in Dundalk which will be held at the Imperial Hotel this evening and he's asking people to come along if they wish to join uh, in this party, whatever it may end up being called. Good morning to you, Patrick Tobey, and thanks uh, for joining us. I understand uh, that you set uh, about starting the process uh, by submitting documents uh, to uh, register this party last week, uh, and that uh, you have uh, the support of some nine councillors who have joined the party, including former SDLP councillor uh, Rosemary Shields in Tyrone, uh, and that at this stage, you've already got 1,400 members. Well, at this stage, we have 1,400 people who've signed up to the organisation. Um, as I said, nine elected reps uh, from Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, the SDLP, and from independent backgrounds. Uh, we're speaking to another 20 elected reps across the political spectrum currently. Um, we officially founded our, our party there on Saturday, uh, the 5th of January, just nearly 100 years after the first stall. Our constitution of the party has been adopted. Um, we have been uh, selected a party name and are currently registering the party name with the Electoral Commission's North and South. Uh, we've had 11 public meetings across the country, which have been attracting uh, between uh, 200 and 350 people to the meetings. Uh, we've 20 more uh, public meetings planned between now and mid-February. And I think we're firmly on the radar of the political establishment and the media establishment across the country. 20 common have been founded so far across the country, and six of these have been in the north of Ireland. Uh, and we've achieved more in the north of Ireland than Fianna Fáil has done in 20 years of dithering uh, since the time Bertie Hearn said that the party was going to start contesting elections in the north. Counties such as Meath and uh, Cork and Dublin and Donegal have multiple commons in them at the moment and uh, we'll, we're actually starting to canvas now uh, once a week in these areas. Uh, we have Corley County forming in, in, in these counties too and we will have selection conventions for the local elections which will start at the end of this month. Uh, we're also fundraising currently. We've got our first church gate collections uh, over the weekend and um, we're asking people, I suppose, citizens uh, who are aligned to our politics, who feel mm-hmm. that they have no voice, who feel that they are disenfranchised by the establishment, uh, who are in good standing uh, to come along to the meeting in Dundalk tonight in the Imperial Hotel at 7.30 and listen to what we have to say um, because we believe that you know, there, there is groupthink at a radical level in this country that most of the political parties on a range of different issues uh, are on one voice. And we also think there's a problem with the political culture, a political culture where elected reps, you know, they're looking <clears throat> one eye on the, on the leader for brownie points and one eye on their seat to keep it. And none of them, very few of them, uh, feel that they have the confidence to stand against the prevailing winds of our time. 
And we need to have elected reps who can ask the hard questions, who can ask the unpopular questions at times, <clears throat> and who can stand up uh, to the majority. Uh, and it's only when you have that type of diversity, that type of um, uh, multiplicity of views in the doll, that people are represented and that you don't have the groupthink, which is a danger in Irish politics. Right, and is there a consensus uh, in terms of uh, the thinking with people who attend your meetings, do you think? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's about three main engines of interest coming towards us at the moment. The, the first one would be people who, are, who seek to unite the people of Ireland, north and south. Um, and, you know, that's a, a real issue now for many people yeah. uh, over the last while. Uh, the second engine would be people who see economic, see, uh, economic justice as not having uh, the importance in the political debate that it should have. Mm. And that's what we're talking about, health, education, housing, uh, and making sure that people have a proper wage. And of, uh, uh, the third engine of uh, our support would come from people who would see that everybody should have a right to life and that the right to life should be a human right and not just for some. Okay. And uh, they're the three different groups. It's a disparate and two, group of two, people. Two, two, we're, two, we're, two, we're trying to uh, draw them together into one political unit. Two out of the three issues uh, addressed very well, I think, in your opinion, by the Sinn Féin party. Uh, and you talk about party leaders, your former boss, uh, Jerry Adams, of course, uh, led uh, the party throughout our lifetimes. Uh, you're moving in on his turf this evening. Do you expect objectors from Sinn Féin? Well, I, I, I don't. And I think, you know, um, first of all, people from Sinn Féin shouldn't be worried with regard to this, this particular movement. First and foremost, if they're worried that there is another organization developing to achieve a united Ireland, well, then, you know, that's a strange thing, because obviously it should be the fact that they should welcome other national political movements who seek to develop a united Ireland. Secondly, I suppose, you know, Sinn Féin have, in my view, haven't had the competition that they need, especially in the north of Ireland. And when an organisation doesn't You're setting out to undermine Sinn Féin. No, I'm actually, I'm setting out to to challenge Sinn Féin with regard to making sure it does the job correctly and to make sure that the objectives of Irish unity are pursued. Which implies that it's not. Well, uh, all I'm saying to you is... I mean, it's not that long ago you were on the programme calling them Republican light. All I'm saying to you is, in the north of Ireland especially, you have a situation where Sinn Féin doesn't really have any competition whatsoever. And when an organisation doesn't have competition, it grows stale, it grows lazy, and it doesn't mm. work as hard as it should with regard to its people. And there are plenty of constituencies in so the north of Ireland where the vote is actually falling. So in, when you in, say Sinn Féin is stale and lazy, you're not trying to undermine them? No, first of all, I'm, I'm saying when, a, when an organisation... Uh, starts is Sinn Féin stale and lazy? Not have. Well, I don't think that Sinn Féin are running at the speed that they should be, especially in the north of Ireland. Mm. And most people, even internally, I'd say, would recognise the fact that in constituencies across the north of Ireland, the, the, the amount of people from the nationalist and republican community coming out to vote is falling over the last 10 or 15 years because people see elections as foregone conclusions. And, you know, in the south of Ireland for years, people have noticed that if, if, if there's a voting bloc that is married to one political organization and, and, and doesn't shift from that organization, well, then the danger is then that it doesn't incentivize hard work. It doesn't mm. incentivize people to, to push as hard as they can. 
But when there's competition for the political allegiance of people in an area, it does incentivize hard work and incentivize people to push as hard as they can. There are many fine people within Sinn Féin, many hard-working mm-hmm. people in Sinn Féin. I'm not saying that there isn't. But what I'm saying to you is they have nothing to fear against wholesome, decent competition. And what kind of a, a turnout do you expect uh, this evening? What kind of interest has there been in this particular meeting? I mean, we saw the huge turnout in Navan uh, and in other parts of the country just last week. Uh, I was reading about uh, an enthusiastic-sounding meeting that took place in Donegal. But when you talk about Dundalk, you really are talking about uh, a Sinn Féin stronghold. Uh, as I say, it's Jerry Adams' turf at the moment, Arthur Morgan before him. Uh, and if there is any pocket of the country where Sinn Féin has popular support, it must be Dundalk. Well, we had massive turnouts last week. In, in Cork, we had 350 people turn out. Uh, we had a number of elected reps turn out to the meeting and we're going to have six coming in Cork uh, County uh, before the end of the year. Uh, first of all, no political organisation has a God-given right to represent anybody uh, in the country. And you know, Sinn Féin or, or anybody else don't have a God-given right to represent people of an Irish Republican or an Irish uh, nationalist background. People have to work for the right to be able to represent uh, constituents. And we will, we will be going to, to Dundalk uh, today to speak to those three constituencies, people who seek, you know, people who, who, are, who are really frustrated with regards to the establishment's ignoring of the economic justice issues that 750,000 people are waiting on a hospital waiting list at the moment, mm. 110,000 people on trolleys last year. And Dundalk, you know, had a particular experience with regards to losing its own hospital uh, over uh, the, uh, the last 10 years. And as a result, we've seen hospital trolley counts increase in Cavan uh, and uh, Drogheda in those intervening years. Um, we've also seen 100,000 people currently working in poverty in this country and 500,000 people in housing uh, distress, many of those people paying exorbitant um, uh, rates of rent in the likes of County Laos. So I think a lot of these people will, will need, feel the need for another strong voice on these issues, and I would welcome them to the meeting to make up their minds in which ways can, they can be represented in the best way. When you talk about uh, an all-Ireland, all-Ireland party, uh, would you liken this party uh, to Sinn Féin or more like the SDLP? Well, uh, first of all, I would say that we're an Irish Republican party, but we want to see it as a broad Republican party. Uh, In other words, in 1916 and 1918, people will be aware that uh, Cahill Brewer and W.T. Cosgrave fought on the same side for the same objectives. And at that time, republicanism was quite a broad organization. So I believe that, I suppose, Sinn Féin have narrowed its base over the last number of years. Obviously, people like myself and many others don't have a home there anymore. And what I would be trying to do is develop a broad republican organization that people from a Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, and a SDLP background would feel comfortable in. It will be very firmly seeking to build Irish unity. And indeed, I think, actually, Sinn Féin have, have made mistakes in the past with regards to Irish unity. First and foremost, I see the border as a wall with maybe a, a thousand blocks. Each one of those blocks is, is a practical issue, like a cross-border um, ambulance service, a cross-border health service, education service, you know, cross-border corporation tax or excise duty. And you know, while we're waiting for the Irish independence uh, uh, referendum, mm. we should be seeking to take down these blocks one by one to seek convergence on both sides of the border. So it makes life better for us now, but also it means when that sunny day happens and there is Irish unity, transition is not as difficult as it would be without that work. I also believe that 
you know, you know, Sinn Féin need to start to look beyond the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement, it was a wonderful agreement. It was the basis of a peace that none of us expected, really, at the time to happen. But to be honest, the institutions under the Good Friday Agreement, nobody could say that they're actually functioning at the moment. Two years, we have had stalemate installments, while at the same time, nationalists and republicans, and indeed unionists and loyalists, some of them, are in food poverty, in housing poverty, yeah. in health poverty. We need to make sure that we build a functioning uh, uh, democratic system in the north. And in the interim, the southern government and the British government needs to institute joint authority straight away. Uh, we also need to be looking towards the All-Ireland economy. Um, the All-Ireland economy was mooted in, uh, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement as the great change that was going to happen in Ireland. And for me, it is probably the tool that will mitigate most against the dangers of Brexit. And yet, to be honest... But you, you, you could debate those issues back and forth forever and a day. Uh, but when it, it comes to establishing or realising a reunited Ireland, Sinn Féin uh, has its Republican roots linked with the provisional IRA and the campaign, which they say led to the Good Friday Agreement, which will ultimately lead to uh, reunited Ireland. Uh, but uh, is it a, an advantage for Sinn Féin in trying to re- attract Republicans over you or a disadvantage? Do you think that their uh, roots are linked to the provisionals? Well, first of all, I suppose um, the, the, the provisional uh, IRA campaign that we saw over the last um, four or five decades uh, obviously created great difficulties for many people on the island of Ireland. Uh, many of people from a Republican background, including my own, would see that that campaign actually came from the major injustices that existed in the north of Ireland. So uh, you had a situation in the north hmm. where people from a nationalist or a Catholic community didn't have a right to vote. Yeah, but you were a spectator they, in that. You have no links to it at all, whereas Sinn Féin does. Well, so well, is that well, an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, what I would say to, to people is very firmly this. You know, I have my analysis with regards to the injustices that happened in the north of Ireland hmm. between 69 and right up to... Uh, the Good Friday agreement. Yes. Uh, other people will have, will have different... Um, well, some uh, Republicans will say that uh, other people shared that analysis and took a stand uh, and either joined or represented the provisionals. Uh, not a, a claim that you can make now as a no, Republican. No, no, so is, 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 is that an advantage or a disadvantage in terms of attracting Republicans for Sinn Féin? I, I don't see, that, see, that, see it either as an advantage or a disadvantage, to be honest. What I believe is that people will look at the work rates of our party and our individuals with regards to trying to achieve economic justice and Irish unity. And they'll they'll simply say the organization which has the Mm. best policies in that regard, the best representatives in that regard, regard, and the hardest work in that regard. And Padre Tobin is is as credible as Gerry Adams or Martin McGuinness was or Martin Ferris or whoever. People can see the, the work that I've put in in the last uh, 21 years on these issues. And indeed, I've invested my heart, my soul, and my energy into the achievement of the unity of the Irish people. Uh, and, you know, I'm not trying to take away from all the great work that was done by many other Irish Republicans. But, you know, Sinn Féin themselves will tell you that they don't believe that they can achieve Irish unity by themselves. They admit that there needs to be other political organizations to achieve that. And I would be very happy if we can bring people from an SDLP background, a Fianna Fáil background, and uh, other backgrounds into an organization that's dedicated in achieving economic justice and Irish unity. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to be feared by more people 
being involved in the, the, the work towards these issues. And indeed, anybody that seeks to push people out of a movement that wants to build Irish unity hasn't really got Irish unity uh, at uh, okay. their, their first priority. Well, you're asking people to meet with you at half seven at the Imperial this evening. We'll leave it there for the moment, Owen. Thank you, as always, for joining us Thank here you. on the programme today. That's Independent TD for Mead West, Peter Toby. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a third health facility has seen protests uh, by people who are objecting to abortions taking place inside these facilities take place. Uh, this is uh, the health clinic in County Kilkenny. The protest which took place on Saturday follows uh, the New Year's Day protest in Galway uh, and indeed uh, the protest outside Our, our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in uh, Drogheda. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen joins us now and uh, a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. I suppose to a, a large degree this was uh, expected. Uh, indeed we spoke about it uh, before the legislation allowing for the termination of pregnancy came into force and asked you if you'd support such protests uh, and if I remember Remember correctly, you said you wouldn't oppose these type of protests as long as they were peaceful. Yeah, we're in a new situation here, Michael. Um, we have, I think, an unjust law like we've never had in the country before. Um, innocent uh, children are being targeted by that law. And there are two people to be cared for in this situation. There's the mother and the unborn baby. Our government has delivered legislation which I don't believe people voted for when they repealed the Eighth Amendment. We didn't even manage to get modest amendments through to allow pain relief in later term abortions. The government is providing effectively a fast-track abortion system where you have no trained counselling, you have GPs with no special training providing this, you have a helpline. There's no talk of in any way trying to persuade or encourage a situation where um, a woman might keep her baby. So in that context, you know, people are very upset, but they're not just, I think, in protest mode. They actually want to help in situations where they believe that Simon Harris and others are showing no empathy at all uh, towards the unborn child. And therefore, I suppose what I would say, what is important here is presence, not protest. People are right to protest against the law. I hope, and I've not, I've heard nothing to suggest otherwise, that in 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 being present where abortions are taking place, people need to be mindful of the fact that their concern is both for the mother and the unborn baby. So it needs to be gentle, it needs to be calm, um, it needs to be respectful. Um, But yes, the government has abandoned all pretense at being interested in reducing the number of abortions. So there is now a new onus, I suppose, on people in civil society who care for both the mother and the unborn baby to be out there. There are women, for example, who have suffered abortion regret, who have organised, who have leaflets that tell their story. They want to encourage people uh, to choose a better way than abortion, better for themselves and better for their babies. And I have to support their their right mm. to do that. And any law that would try and prevent them to do that is, would be an unjust law. Uh, a lot of the reasons for protesting uh, don't uh, apply uh, to the clinic in Kilkenny or in Galway, for that matter, because uh, you're looking at medical terminations. Uh, and uh, the idea of people phoning the clinic, uh, which appears to have been the case in Kilkenny, uh, and saying whatever they had to say to staff uh, and upsetting people... Uh, would seem most uh, unreasonable. Yeah, no, look, if we're talking about legitimate medical interventions, 
to save a mother's life, like has always gone on in Irish hospitals, but which the government now characterises as kind of coming within an abortion definition, then, you know, people have no business um, protesting against that. Um, people need to know their facts and they need to know what's going on where. Uh, but unfortunately, it is the government that has landed us in this situation mm. where people don't know, you know, it's actually a relatively small number of GPs, for example, who are providing this service. But I think a lot of people would be very uncomfortable and would feel that they had a new kind of relationship with their GP if they thought that that was a GP or a GP practice, which was also terminating the lives of unborn children. Without but they shouldn't be calling given. the GP's practice uh, and condemning the practice uh, and calling people names, should they? Absolutely. Never call people names. I mean, that's what I say. Protest should always be gentle, respectful. It should always be the, It should always be mindful uh, of the dignity of every person involved. And actually, that includes the abortionist, mm. who is a human being who is doing wrong, but, 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 but needs and deserves respect in that situation. But we do also need to bear in mind that, you know, as I say, presence, not protest. Mm. It is really, really important here that the public voice about the injustice of abortion continues to be heard. And, you know, I think that the, the minister would be very well advised to call himself aside and feel a new empathy uh, for the unborn child as well as for the mother because laws that try to keep people away from expressing the message respectfully that there is mm. a better way than abortion, those laws, uh, I don't believe they will be followed and I, I think it will be counterproductive. Is but, it gentle um, or respectful, though, to accuse a, a young woman of murder? I don't believe it is. When you see, when, when you see people standing outside the Lourdes Hospital, for example, with uh, abortion is murder, killing underway, and that sort of thing, uh, it, it, doesn't that amount to accusing a young woman of abortion or of murder? I beg your pardon. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I've always, I've always felt the the abortionist definitely commits something that is no different from murder. But the person in the situation is always, you know, it varies greatly, obviously. But you have to be extremely sensitive. Um, because simply you just don't know the situation. And, uh, and that is why I strongly believe that the best protest, the best will, will be a physical presence that witnesses to something better than abortion. It, it, it is mm. the government that deserves to be criticised for introducing this, this unbelievable kind of injustice. I don't, people, don't think people voted for the extent of it when they voted for repeal, by the way. As I said, this goes far further than a lot of people were comfortable with. 12 weeks without any reason. You don't need mm. me to go through it. Mm. The government just acted like people had given a mandate for all of this when they hadn't. So they have effectively lied to people. So there is a legitimate protest, but I think outside clinics and facilities, it needs to be more about getting the message across to people that there is a better way than abortion and that real practical help is available. Mm. Uh, and I would say one other thing, you haven't asked me about it, but I think it's an important thing to say. Many people who are opposed to abortion are often inspired by faith, Christian faith or otherwise. Although there are plenty of non-believers who also mm. believe and see the injustice of abortion. A protest against abortion should not be turned into a religious crusade. Um, it, this is um, something that it is about, as I said, of offering people, women, something better than abortions. And yes, trying to call on the consciences of abortionists, abortion providers, not to be doing this. Um, but it will certainly be misunderstood if if 
that section of those who are concerned about this see this as a vehicle for promoting their faith. It is not the moment to do that because this is a message for people of all faiths well, or, the, or none. The, the, the protest that took place outside Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, I think people feel that it was fuelled by priests in uh, St. Mary's Parish uh, because they sent out text messages uh, suggesting that an abortion would take place on that Monday morning and asked people to pray for the woman involved to have a change of heart uh, and indeed uh, made uh, similar uh, appeals uh, to parishioners who attended Mass on the Sunday. Uh, Would you ask the priests in Drogheda to desist from that type of preaching? I'm too far away from this to know the facts, but but, uh, perhaps as well as you. But but as far as I know... Well, the reason I don't know any more about it than that is that the priests haven't spoken about it. Uh, We've tried to make contact uh, with the parish priest in St. Mary's, uh, and he hasn't replied as far as I understand it. Well, my understanding now, just from the little bit I've been able to gather, is that the the, the reference to Drogheda was more to do with the fact that the 7th, I think, of January was supposed to be the day when abortions would start taking place in the hospital. Mm. And that this wasn't based on particular information about any one person. And I'd, I'd assume that's correct. Indeed, I made yeah. that point on the programme. But regardless of whether people were aware of if there was a breach of confidentiality, which I don't think happened, but regardless of who knew what, I believe that it's quite possible that the communication from the priests in St. Mary's fueled the protest. Well, it's okay to protest, Michael. And I, I, if people of faith and faith leaders want to urge people uh, there are people to pray that lives will be saved. I, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. I'm not. And that somebody that. is murdering a, a, a child, well, and that somebody is killing a child, uh, and so on. No, I, you see, it's how. So that's you, what the placard said, though. Yeah, but I suppose unless you're telling me that the priest said to put that on the placard, no, you can't. You no. Know. Well, so if what we're talking about then is people are saying, look. This unjust law is now starting to take effect. Please pray that lives will be saved. That is, for people of faith, that is a completely appropriate way. You know, even people with relatively little faith pray for each other in times mm. of crisis. You know, and, and I'm a sinner, I have faith, but I certainly wouldn't be foisting it on other people. But, but I'm always mindful of the fact that there are people who, who, who don't necessarily know where they stand in the question of faith or don't have faith, uh, but who really do see that there is a much better way than abortion, uh, that it hurts women in many, many cases, and that it always ends the life of an innocent child. And uh, I want those people to be as much part of the presence uh, near abortion facilities, mm. offering a better way to women. Um, and meanwhile, uh, people of faith can, can, can pray for all of those involved and they can encourage people to get... That is the role of the churches. Mm. If, in, in the same way that the churches encourage people to get out there and support the homeless or to engage in, mm. in uh, uh, social action against other kinds of injustice, then it is legitimate that abortion, which is a new injustice okay. in our country, yeah, that would I, be part of it. And I, I think you probably agree that it would be helpful if uh, the priests made a statement to that uh, effect, but of course uh, that's up to them to decide on that themselves. Uh, just if we could park the issue of abortion for a moment and as to whether it's right or wrong, is it possible, regardless of your view on abortion, to introduce exclusion zones, or is there a constitutional contradiction in trying to do that? 
I, I think there may be a constitutional contradiction or a constitutional problem. I haven't, um, I haven't looked at that in sufficient detail to give you a, a confident answer, Michael, to be honest with you at this point. Um, but it is interesting that it doesn't, they don't seem to exist in any other European country. And what I think you're seeing in Simon Harris and the government's approach here is that they are absolutely in lockstep with the abortion movement and they want to brook and tolerate no opposition uh, to their new law. And of course, it is a convenient distraction from the fact that they have now made abortion available without any specialised training for GPs and counselling. It's really fast-tracking abortion through a helpline and making no effort to save lives anymore. I mean, I think that shows... um, an almost sociopathic lack of empathy on the part of the government, um, given what's at stake here. Um, so, you know, their next step then in their in their rather totalitarian approach to promoting abortion would seem to be um, that we will that they will um, create these bubble zones. Uh, the Home Secretary in Britain pulled back from doing that. Um, I, I think Simon Harris and co. need to call themselves aside. I don't think it's constitutionally possible. I don't think people will obey it. Um, uh, and I don't think it will work. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you, as always, for joining us here on the programme. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, nurses are about uh, to uh, take industrial action in around 40,000 members of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation will strike for the first time on the 31st of this month. On the same day, around 6,000 members of the Psychiatric Nurses Association will put in place a ban on overtime. There will be a similar overtime ban on three days in in February, and that will be followed by three days of full strike action on the 12th, 13th and 14th of February. Three days that uh, nurses and midwives who are in the INMO will also be striking. We're joined now by Peter Hughes, who's uh, the General Secretary of the PNA, the Psychiatric Nurses Association. Good morning to you, Peter, and thanks for joining morning, us. Good morning, Michael. Are, are the issues similar? Uh, there would be uh, similarities, all right, to do with the uh, the difficulty in recruiting and retaining nurses, uh, and we would have a major uh, problem with that in the psychiatric services. And the government ha- has found it all but impossible to attract psychiatric nurses. Well, we did um, we did a survey of our branches in November two thousand and seventeen, and it showed that there was five hundred vacancies throughout the country. We did we repeated that same survey in. August of 18, and it showed a 40% increase. There's 700 vacancies throughout the services now. And it's unsustainable, uh, the amount of reliance on overtime and agency just to maintain services as they are. And this is seriously impacting on uh, service delivery and ultimately patient care. And that's why you believe an overtime ban will be very effective in itself. Well, an overtime ban will highlight uh, the the reliance on overtime. Uh, there is a huge reliance uh, throughout the country, um, and it varies from from service to service. Uh, the amount of reliance on overtime in the agency, uh, and uh, the type of impact it will have on patients, undoubtedly, will be of concern to people. Should they be very concerned? Well, I would I would 
think that the HSE and the department have failed to address this. Like recruitment and retention in the psychiatric service of nurses is not something new. This is something that has been going on for 10, 12 years. It's really, really going on for, for a long time. And basically our members have just got so frustrated that when we balloted for industrial action up to including strike, we had a 95% ballot in favour. Now that's a huge statement and that shows the frustration of our members of uh, constantly uh, working under severe pressure to try and maintain services. Like the other, the other aspect is uh, we conducted research uh, in conjunction with the Royal College of Surgeons in 2016 and this was 10 years after the government policy on mental health, mm. the Vision for Change, was uh, published. Yep. That research showed that 76% of the beds have been taken out of the system and only 30% of the promised community services have been developed. Mm. So ultimately, that Vision for Change was used as a cost-saving mechanism. We now have a situation where we have overcapacity of usually 120% in most admission units throughout the country. Mm. And that ultimately is to do with the lack of development of community services. And we need psychiatric nurses to develop those services. We don't, we're 700 short to remain at the service level that we're at. Mm. And if we were to implement Vision for Change, we would be talking anything between another 1,500 to 2,000 nurses to deliver that. Okay, so but we do like, have to make nursing attractive. But like Vision for Change, uh, which was the template for changing how we care for people with mental health problems, closing the asylums and so forth, and having people live in supervised housing in the community, there was a, a plan for recruiting staff as well. Uh, and the idea of an additional €35 million Euro going to health services on an annual basis basis to bring into effect the Vision for Change programme. Uh, but the government has been a- unable to spend that money. We've spoken about this uh, previously. Uh, I-, I think uh, they were able to spend just 15 million out of 35 million, which was allocated in 2017. Why is that? What is the problem in recruiting staff? The difficulty is that um, the, the staff, uh, the nurses, see opportunities. The, the market, the competitive markets are there, like uh, the UK, Australia, Canada, where um, nurses are in parity with the therapy grades in salary. Uh, terms and conditions are a lot better, and nurses are voting with their feet. Even staying within the Irish system, the, the, a lot of the agency uh, services are paying 20% more to nurses than the HSE. So people are just, it's because of better salary and better terms and conditions in other jurisdictions. Mm. But if the government makes money available for the recruitment of staff and can't attract them, well, what does it do? Make more money available? Well, I think what they need to do is the issue that they haven't addressed is the pay issue. And if nurses are paid uh, an acceptable salary, therefore you will recruit and retain more more nurses because they, and ultimately the service that they work in, in with the, the, the terms and conditions there will improve, the conditions of work will improve because you will have more staff uh, and ultimately that will attract people. If you're trying to attract people into a service that has uh, 
20% vacancy level, it's very difficult. You have straight away, you're, work, you're going into a pressurised environment. So what is happening in other countries is they don't have the same uh, recruitment retention issue. I'm sure they do have some issue, but not to the same extent that we're having here in Ireland. Do you believe your members are, are going to strike? Our members have shown by the 95% mm. vote that they are committed to having this issue resolved once and for all. As I said, mm. it's going on. It's not something new. Mm. It's going on for numerous years, and it just needs to be addressed once and for all. Okay, and but the, the reality is, is ultimately, this is that we can provide a more comprehensive quality service for the patients with mm. mental health. But do you, do you believe that it, it will be resolved by the middle of next month, or do you believe that your members will strike? Well, we're open to, to engagement. We're actually meeting the Department of Health and the HSE tomorrow, uh, and we're open to, to engagement uh, to avert this, if, if, that, can, if mm. that can happen. But from what we understand uh, at this stage, uh, there's little prospect of uh, the government uh, turning on this. Well, the, the, we would hope that they would have a, a change in response to that because, um, you know, ultimately it's a big it's a big thing for nurses to ballot and decide mm. they are going on strike. It's not something nurses do lightly. So it shows the frustration and the commitment from our members to get this issue resolved. Ultimately, as I said, this is going to deliver by looking by paying nurses uh, an appropriate salary. Ultimately, this will result in better services for patients. Okay, Peter, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Peter Hughes is General Secretary of the PNA, the Psychiatric Nurses Association, and brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwin. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.